0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. Scripture says, By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this morning we thank you for your word. And as we receive it now, as we hear it, as we seek to be taught by it, Lord. We pray for your grace to be upon us, that your spirit would take what is yours here, that he would open our eyes, that he would help us see Jesus, Lord, that your spirit would give us full assurance of the grace that you have given us, full assurance of our salvation in Christ. Even this morning, we would pray that the spirit would open eyes who do not believe and do not know so that they might believe and receive Jesus today. Lord, we, we come humbly and ready and hungry and thirsty for your word, so feed us today. Lord, help me as I teach. Give me power and strength. Might you be glorified this, today in everything. Might Christ increase and might we decrease. And I ask this now for your sake, work among us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, there once was a lie, and the lie began to find its way into a specific community. The lie infested the community. A few in the community believed the lie. They took hold of the lie, and they began to to train and disciple and teach others in the community the lie as well. And so, like a virus, the lie began to spread within the community as a whole. Now, not everyone believed the lie. But those who did, those who believed the lie, they began to follow those lie-believing leaders, and and they began to act like the lie-believing leaders. They began to berate others and and ostracize those who didn't believe the lie and and even demonize those who, who didn't believe the lie but were instead truth believers. The lie believers began to form a special clique, a special group, a a club, if you will, for their own self-knowledge and righteousness. They began to elevate themselves as the ones who knew, and everybody else was substandard, not as knowledgeable or, or great as them. When the leadership of the community began to uh, challenge and confront and speak to the lie believers about their lies and to to call them to truth, the lie believers instead hurled insults. They attacked, they slandered the community and its leaders, so much so that the lie believers decided they had to go. And so they ended up leaving the community, they fractured it, and they began to throw down tests of loyalty to those who were truth believers. Where were you going to stand? What was left for the truth believers to do? It was challenging. They had to put back together the pieces of what remained. Overall, they would tell you that one of the things that they experienced and were left with was a great sense of disorientation. They were disoriented about things now. The shock and the awe and the trauma of the lie believer's actions and accusations, it caused them to doubt where they stood. It brought confusion and pain and and even disorientation. So much so that they began to question, well, what is true? What is false? What is good? What is evil? Who's in the community and who's out? You might ask what this was or where this came from, but this is the exact context that John was writing to in his letter here in 1 John. He was writing this letter to a church, most likely in Ephesus, with a church in uh, uh, Asia Minor, who had been fractured, who, who had been broken. He was writing to a group of Christians who were facing a serious trial of disorientation in the world when false teachers had come in among them, began to spread their lies, take people from the community, and attack the leadership and what happened for that church was a great period of spiritual and evil, even social disorientation. And when you're in those situations, when you're in those moments of disorientation, when you begin to question what is right and what is wrong, what is truth and what is falsehood, what is good and what is bad, who's in and who's out, when you begin to question those things, you're you're shaken. What do you do? How do you, how do you move forward? This message is for those of you here this morning, today, that may be in a a period of spiritual or social disorientation. The lies have been spread, you've heard the the things being said, you've felt the the challenge of others, and you wonder, where do I stand? Am I in or out? Is, Is there truth or not? This is what John was writing to, and he wants to give this church his friends a sense of confidence, because one of the big questions, maybe perhaps the biggest question that they were wrestling with is, is this true of God? Does God love me? How do I know His love? Because these false teachers have said that you must be with them to know God's love, and we're not. And how do we, how do we know even God's love is for us? And the lie believers are at your throat telling you what you believe isn't true. It causes you to just lose a sense of footing everywhere. So how do you have confidence in God when you're unsure of everything, when the community doesn't look the way it once did, when there's relational pain and hurt and a loss of love? How do you have confidence? John has said, he he says it very plainly in verse 13 of chapter 5, towards the end of this letter, he says, these things I have written to you, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, for John's community, for his church, they were being told Jesus isn't fully human. Jesus isn't the Son of God. Jesus isn't really who you say He is. And so how do you know you have eternal life? And John says, no, 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 no friends, I write this to you so that you may know. I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, who believe in Jesus, so that you have complete confidence, total assurance that you have eternal life. Our relationship with God, our assurance in Him takes a hit when we're in these periods of disorientation. And the sermon is for us who have that disorientation going on in our lives and our hearts, even spiritually right now towards God, and we're wondering, does God love us? Am I in? Can I have confidence that I'm in Christ? Do I need to reevaluate things? In, in this series, we've been looking at John's letter here, and John makes some very bold, black and white kind of claims. He says, he says if you don't love your brother, you're not in the light, and, and there's times when we struggle with that. And so we, we wonder, we step back, and we go, am I not in the light? Or if, you, if you're not obedient to God's commands, you walk in darkness. And we go, am I in the darkness? You read verse 21, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And we struggle, and we go, maybe, maybe I'm outside of God's love. Maybe I'm not in this. John wants to write as he takes those things and he understands their disorientation and their concern, he takes those things and he draws them together to say, brothers and sisters, friends, my church family, I want you to have confidence even in the midst of your disorientation. I want you to have confidence that you are in the love of Christ even in the midst of what's happening in the community. And what John says here in verses 13 to 21, I could put like this, that the assurance That confidence of of knowing and believing and realizing what is true comes from God's love. That you and I will have more and more assurance of our standing with God, of, of our security in Him, of our stability before Him, the more and more we see His love and who He is. Assurance comes from God's love. The liars, the lie tellers, the lie believers of John's day, these false teachers that were in the church and scattering it and making a mess there, they they had said, no, Jesus isn't the Son of God, He's not human. And they had even began to say, you know what, to be really in, to really be close to God, you've got to have some special experiences. You've got to have certain special knowledge that only a few of us possess. What later became known in the second century as the Gnostic movement, the Greek word gnosis or knowledge, they were saying, you've got to know, and, and we have this special knowledge. We know things. And and you simple-minded, weak little Christians, like what do you know? Nothing. So how can you really be spiritual? And what they began to do is place their assurance or their confidence on subjective experiences, even suspect experiences, rather on the concrete objective reality, the knowledge of the love of God for us in Christ. And so John says, let's take it away from the subjective knowledge and and experiences. But Let's put it back into the objective reality of here's what God's love for us is. Here's how you can have confidence in God's love. Here's how you can have assurance that comes from God's love. And he gives us three ways. He says to this community, here's three ways to have confidence of God's love for you. I want you to have assurance this morning of God's love for you. I want you to see it and believe it so that your heart isn't wound up and it isn't disoriented, but that it's stable and steady in Christ. The first way that we would know to have confidence of God's love for us is to know God's love in us. We have to know His love within us. What does that mean? What does that look like? Maybe the way I would ask that question is, how can you be confident that God abides in you? It was one of the statements, does God abide in me? Do I abide in him? How can I be confident of that? The answer is to ask, what do you truly believe? What do you really believe? Here's, here's the way John approaches this in verses 13 through 15. He says, by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. Now, there's, there's where the, the initial confusion comes because he uses a term here. He says, Here's how we know God abides in us and we in him. And, and at least I, and I'll tell you, John is hard for me as a pastor, as someone who studies the Bible. John in his writing, and especially in this letter, I get tangled up in knots sometimes with. Just so you are encouraged in your own work with the word as well. Your pastor is like, I got to, like, what is he talking about? This doesn't make sense. We know that we abide in Him and He in us. Like, what what is He talking about? How do I know God dwells within me and I am in Him as well? Well, John takes what is subjective out there and he says, no, let me make it concrete for you. How do I know that I abide in the Lord? He says, here's how you know. By this we know, because He has given us of His Spirit. That is to say, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. John brings to the forefront the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and he brings it to bear on the life of the Christian once again. Now, who is the Holy Spirit? What is he talking about there? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and the Father and the Son have sent the Spirit to be for us a seal, that's the language that Paul uses, or a deposit or a guarantee of God's love. Whoever has the Holy Spirit within them has the guarantee the down payment, the seal of God's love on their heart. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter five verse five. He says, "Hope doesn't put us to shame, because God's love okay, capture that. He and John are right in step together. God's love has been poured into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So if we have the Holy Spirit, we have God's love. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, and He's been given to us. We say, okay, how has the Holy Spirit been given to us? Where do I get the Holy Spirit? Jesus Himself told the disciples in John chapter 14, He said, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. The world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells within you and will be in you. Here's an objective reality. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. But but how do we know that He dwells within us? How do we know the Spirit is is within us? What do we need to do or what needs to happen? Some will say, well, you need to have special experiences. You need to speak in tongues or or have visions or or experience miracles or, or maybe even just on this level, you need to feel all warm and gushy inside. And that's how you know the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you. These are all subjective things. Maybe a few of them are uh, are suspect experiences. And John says, no, no, I want you to have full assurance. So, here's how you have that assurance. Here's how you know. The Holy Spirit dwells within you, and verse 14, you affirm the testimony of the apostles in the Scripture concerning Jesus. Look what he says, and we have seen And testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, John here is saying, listen, I saw with my own two eyeballs Jesus Christ and what he came and did, and his death and his resurrection. I saw that, and I've declared that to you. I am not lying, I am an eyewitness of this event, as are many others. And we, together, the apostles speaking, we testify, we proclaim that to you, and here's what we proclaim. And so what John says in verse 14 is, is in some ways, a doctrinal statement. The Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Or John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. The Father has sent the Son, that's something these false teachers didn't believe, But John is saying, I've seen it, and I testify it to you. The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, that Jesus came, and He died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Anyone can get on this. It's for the whole world. Well, here's what John is doing. He's beginning to connect some realities. The Spirit dwells within you. You affirm that and believe that. And furthermore, you affirm and believe the testimony of the apostles concerning Jesus Christ, the Scriptures, we might say. So the Spirit takes the Word, brings them together, and something happens. A result issues, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, that's another doctrinal statement to say. It's a profound thing to say. Jesus is the Son of God. It's not saying He is a little less than god or he's just some sort of spiritual prophet or good teacher but jesus is fully god sent from the father the savior of the world whoever confesses that jesus is the son of god and the word here confess it's a bold word it's a it's a profound word in the greek it's to express one's express openly one's allegiance to a person it's to proclaim he's mine I, i'm with him I believe my life is for him. So get this here. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now, that's where John started, right? By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. And then he comes down and he says, here's how you know you abide in him. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, how does that happen? How does a person confess that Jesus is the Son of God? Is it just saying that, Jesus is the Son of God? Well, John is here meaning sincerely within our hearts we profess and confess that. It's a matter of our allegiance, our life being given over to Jesus, sincerely, truly. Can anyone just say this and it be that way? Well, this is what John says earlier in this chapter in verse 2. He says, "...by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God." And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. John says that the spirit has to enable you to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. The spirit has to enable you through the Word, through the testimony of the apostles in the Scripture, that Jesus is come from God. Or 1 Corinthians 12, 3 Paul says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord. Again, that's a statement of of great importance. It's a statement of salvation to say, Jesus is Lord, is to deny all other aspects, all other saviors. Jesus is the one sent from God. He is the Lord. No one can say that, Paul says, except by the Holy Spirit. So here's how you know you dwell in God. You abide in God and He in you. The Holy Spirit of God who dwells within you takes the Word of God, the testimony of Jesus, and He enables you to proclaim, Jesus is my Savior and Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. That's good news of assurance. If you have confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart, Jesus... Is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. Scripture says you will be saved. That's how you know you're in God, because only the Holy Spirit can awaken and empower you to be able to make that profession and that confession with your entire life. John is saying this for your assurance. You don't have to have some sort of mystical experience, you don't have to have some sort of radical uh, movement or miracle happen from your hands. You don't have to have some sort of special knowledge that is only hidden for a few. The Holy Spirit takes the Word of God, opens your eyes, lets you see Jesus, that He is the Son, who's the Savior of the world. And you, in seeing Him and what He has done for you on the cross, and believing and trusting in Him, profess and, comp- and, and confess, you proclaim to the world, He is my Savior and my Lord. You're in. God abides in you and you in God. I hope that gives you some assurance because it's not a magic trick. It's what the work of God does in your heart to allow you to confess who Jesus is. You can know God's love in you. God abides in you. So be settled, be sure. But John takes it another step further. He gives us another way to have confidence in God's love, God's the second way to have confidence in God's love is to know God's love for us, to so, know God's love in us, but it's also to know God's love for us. Maybe the way to ask this is, how do you experience God's love? Now, you might want to circle that word "experience" and go, "Well, I experience God's love because I feel warm, or because good things happen, or because it's nice in the world." And and John was saying that's not really. That, that, there's no ground for assurance on that. Let me show you how you can have assurance of God's love. He says this, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe. So there's, there's footing here. There's confidence. We have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Objective. It's from outside of us, to us. God loves us. But how, do I, how have I come to know and believe that love? Well, John says, well, think about who God is. God is love. That's the very next phrase. God is love. This is the second time now that John has said this. He's giving us concrete evidence. The second time he stated that truth, it's God's nature. It's God's character. It's the essence of who God is. Everything that God does is of love. Everything that He is is of love. He is love. So, to to sit here and go, well, how do I know that God loves me? It's to see who He is. It's a very fundamental reality of His nature. God is love, and whoever abides in love, whoever abides in love, abides in God, and God abides in Him. Now, John isn't trying to tie us up in knots here. He's not making a puzzle. He's taking us to fundamentals. He's just told us how God abides in us, right? Through the Spirit. The Spirit indwells us and enables us to profess Jesus as Lord. And now He is telling us the relationship has a way in which we abide in love. And how does that work? We abide in God. Now, I know you might say, but my love is weak. I don't have strong love all the time. Sometimes my love is all over the place. I love God some days, and some days I love tacos more. How How do I know? Like, am I out because of that? no, this is what he says in verse 17, by this love is perfected in us. As as God's love is experienced in my heart, and I know God's love more and more, it's perfected. The word there means to be made complete or made mature. God is working to mature your love in your heart for Him more and more. How does He do that? How does He perfect love within us? Well, He has an object for us in that. First of all, He wants his love to be perfected within us so that we have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. John is looking down the end game here. He's looking at the the last day when we stand before God and he's asking the question, are you gonna go with fear before God? Do you tremble at that day? And not tremble because it will be a great day and, and the Lord will make all things new, but you tremble because you don't know if you're in or out. You don't know if God's love is for you. I mean, that's really where our lack of assurance stands, right? We, we question and we wonder, am I going to stand before God? And He's going to go, not today, sorry. And we have that fear within us. Just, I don't want you to have that fear. I want you to see how God's love is being made mature or made complete within you so that you do not fear. And as God's love is made perfect within you, You can have confidence to stand on that day. You can have confidence for the day of judgment. The the way in which John is talking about this is he's saying, I want to build boldness in your heart. He says, you have to see that God abides in you, that God's love is for you. Love is being made perfect in you. Or the way I would say it here is that the fruit of abiding in God or the fruit of God abiding in you is growing in your life the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. Is that growing? Is that abiding? Is that love reaching its goal? If that's the case, we have confidence. The word confidence here, <laughs> it's a pretty strong word. It's the idea of being absolutely, adamantly sure. It's assurance. This is the kind of confidence that, that football players have. When they're they're playing in the game and the wide receiver catches the ball in the end zone and he gets both feet down right by the sideline, right before going out of bounds, and he's sure he's in, and yet the the official goes, nope, incomplete, and the the receiver goes, what? And he he just kind of pops and he runs over to the ref and he starts shouting, he's like, no, I was in, my feet were here, and the challenge flag is thrown and it's confirmed because he was confident, he knew it. Get a little worked up on this. This is the kind of confidence that John is talking about here. We would be adamantly sure and confident to stand before the judgment. Why? How does this work out? John says it here, because as He is, so also are we in the world. As He is, God is light, God is love, God is truth, and so we are. Light, love, truth. We are becoming more and more like Christ. We are bearing His image and resemblance in the world. So what John is saying here is look, look at what God's doing. He's making love mature and complete in you so that you have confidence and you see that, you have that confidence because you see as He is. So you are in this world. You're becoming more like Christ. Friend, do you look like Christ? Are you becoming more like Him? Maybe it's in small steps and little starts, but but is there a progression? Is there a growth? Do you look more and more like Jesus in light and love and truth Growing in your affections for God? Eager to love the church and love your neighbor and love your enemy? Are you growing in your understanding of the gospel? This is the fruit of God abiding in you, the fruit of the Spirit within your life and in His love so that you can have this confidence to stand before God on the day of judgment. Not so that you can walk up on the day of judgment and say, look at all the stuff I've done for you, God, but because of Christ's work on your behalf, because of what Jesus has done which you've received by faith alone. This growth, of evidence, this growth is evidence of divine love towards you. Or as, as John Calvin put it this way, he said, By nature, indeed, we dread the presence of God, and that justly, for as He is the judge of the world and our sins hold us guilty, death and hell must come to our minds whenever we think of God. But John says that the faithful do not fear. When mention is made to them of the last judgment, but that on the contrary, they go to God's tribunal confidently and cheerfully because they feel assured of His paternal love. How do we feel assured of His paternal love? How do we know this? Well, John puts it this way in verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love. There's that phrase again, completed love, maturing love, cast out fear. It is God's goal for you to grow more and more in your knowledge and assurance of His love so that the fear in your heart shrinks more and more and more. Like, it, it gets out of your heart. That perfect love, the maturing love, the love of God for you, it casts out fear because there's no fear in love. He says, furthermore, fear has to do with punishment. That's why we're afraid to stand before God, because we're, we're going to think the, the axe is going to fall on us, but the hammer has fallen on Christ. He's the one who took our punishment. He's the one who took the blows that we deserve. Christ died as our substitution, our propitiation, taking our punishment for our sins. So whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You may say, I worry, I fear, I I don't know." know. This verse is often taken out of context, and we go, well, fear." It must be put away. Fear has, there's no fear in love. Faith over fear. Now, John here isn't applying this to the things that we should have rational fear over, like a grizzly bear about to maul us in the wood or even a virus or health. John's not talking about that kind of fear. He's saying here, the fear of standing before God on the last day, that can be put away. That can be removed. That fear may show up, but But that fear shows up when we don't believe the objective truth of God's love for us. Think about it. Why do we fear that way? Why do we fear standing before God and fearing that the hammer might drop on us? It's because we refuse to remember what Jesus has done for us. We refuse to believe what He has done for us. We forget to believe. Friends, Jesus died for your sins, all of them every one of them the sins you committed years ago the sins you will commit today and the sins running down the road in your future christ has paid for every one of them god loves you he sent a perfect and complete payment substitute punishment for your sin that's objective reality and it's all removed it's all purified it's all cleansed in Jesus so should you have any fear to stand before God if you've believed in Christ and trusted in him not at all perfect love cast out fear so we need to go to the gospel more and more and more. We need to remember the love of God for us in Christ more and more and more so that our fears are diminished, our fear standing before God is lessened, and our assurance grows. Remember the love of God for you. John has said, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the sacrificial atonement for our sins, or Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You want to have assurance? Know the love of God for you, which He has demonstrated in Christ, taking all your sin. We have confidence by knowing God's love in us, confidence in knowing God's love for us. And thirdly, we have confidence, our assurance can grow because of God's love between us. And we must know God's love between us. Or it's to ask the question this way: what does love do? What does love do? And John here puts it this way: he says, we love. What does love do when this perfect love is is growing within us, when it's being brought to maturity and completion? What happens? We love. I mean, that should should be kind of the the bumper sticker, more than the bumper sticker. It should be the motto over every Christian. We love. That's just who we are. That's what we're known for. We love. I mean, go for that tattoo if you want. We love. But why do we love? Do do we love because it's our duty? Do, Do we love because, well, I have to I don't want to, but I have to. Do do we love because we we feel so obligated, so guilty, and so shamed that, that we've just got to put that out there? We've got to put love out there because we just feel the weight of shame upon ourselves? John says, no, no. We love, I'll take that motto, we love, why? Because He first loved us. Love is an extension. Love to others is an extension of the love of God for us. So the more you stand under the love of God, the more you see the love of God in Christ, the bigger your view of the gospel of grace, the more love should be cascading out of your heart. God's love is a waterfall to us, descending down upon sinners, descending down upon people who are His enemies, and that's how we love. We love because He first loved us. John brings us back to the ethics of this. Do you want assurance? Do you want confidence in your life against the lies? Well, look. Look to love in practice. He puts it this way in verse 20. He says, if anyone says, I love God, it's a great statement, I love God, and yet hates his brother he's a liar. There's the lie. I love God, and yet it's completely disconnected. He hates his brother. That person is a liar. For he, and here's how John rationalizes it. Here's where he makes the logic of the argument. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, he's like, how can you, how can this be true? If you don't love your brother who you can see, who's in front of you, who's in community with you, who's around you, if you don't love them who you can see, how in the world, in fact, you cannot love God whom you haven't seen. The arguments from the lesser, those you can see, to the greater God who you cannot see. So here it is. You can look at your heart and life, you can have assurance by seeing, is there love? We love because God has first loved us, and we love because that is consistent with God's love for us that I love His church because He has loved His church. I love others because He has loved me. Love is the distinguishing mark, right? It's the litmus test. But furthermore, it bears itself out in the command from Christ. This comes down, Jesus takes the law. He takes all the commandments and He just summarizes it. He brings them down to this. This is the commandment we have from Him. Whoever loves God also must also love his brother whoever loves god loves his brother it's a reality and where there's a disconnect it's not a reality you can't love god and not love your brother if you don't love your brother you don't love god the two are connected they're fixed jesus has said this we love one another it's the greatest commandment we love god with all our heart soul mind and strength and we love other. We love our neighbors, ourselves. We love our enemies. You can't love God and not love His people. So where you see, this is why John is building for assurance in us, where you see love between us, you can be confident of God's love there. You can have assurance. We're in step with Him. This should bring up love all the more among us. It should put down hatred and strife and enmity between us because we are looking to see God's grace on us. We're looking to see, have we understood His love? Have we believed it? Well, love will just be abounding. It'll show up. It'll be there. Let me, let me wrap it up in this way. We want assurance. We, we want definitive reality about our seasons of disorientation, socially and spiritually. We we want to stand with with firm footing and say, I know of God's love for me. I know of God's love for us. How do we get that assurance? Where does it come from? This is the assurance that John writes for, he works for. Well, what do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God because the Spirit of God dwells within you and he takes the Word of God and he enables you to see that and believe it and say it and profess it? You can have assurance. Or how do you experience love? Is it just something that you kind of make up that's mystical? Or do you believe, do you look to the, to the radiant cross of Christ and see there is love? There's God's love for me. And I bank my life on it love being perfected with me? Or let me ask, what's your love doing? Are you seeing the love of God in Christ towards you? And is it growing and maturing in you in such a way that it is reflective, it's cascading out in your love towards others? Those are the things that give us assurance of our faith, They give us assurance of our standing before God, that we abide in Him and He in us, Not the mystical movements, not the lies of the world out there, not the false teaching or the Gnosticism or or any of that. It's what God has done for us in Christ, which the Spirit awakens us to, which we take hold of and we, we put in front of us all the more, and it pours out of us in love towards one another. It's the entire goal of John in this letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. There's assurance. There it is. Don't base your assurance on your feelings, on your experiences, on your passions. Base it on the objective truth of God's love for you and what Christ has done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the assurance of love that we have there's not a, a deeper mysticism or knowledge that we have to dip into to, to know that we really love you or that you really love us, but, but you've given us of your Son. Your Spirit opens our eyes to see that, to believe it. And he enables us to love others. Lord, thank you. I pray for those here this morning who are struggling with the assurance of their own faith. I pray, the Father, that as they see these things in them, they would be confident. I pray that you would press home these realities and these truths to our lives. And Lord, where there are things that are missing, maybe we haven't professed that Christ is the Lord. We, we haven't embraced your love for us. We haven't seen love between us, Lord. Give us grace to repent. Give us grace to believe. Give us grace to love. Help us, Father. Thank you for your word. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.